Well, I invite you this morning to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we are in Luke 16, beginning in verse 19 this morning. You'll find that on page 876 in the Pew Bible in front of you. I do, as I I like to, encourage you to have God's Word open this morning. I think it will be very helpful for you as we deal with a heavy topic this morning to be constantly reminded during our time together that what we're considering are not man's ideas, but the very words and ideas of our Lord Christ. And so please uh, have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And as you can tell uh, by the bulletin which you receive, the What Jesus wants to teach us is on the topic of hell. Um, I have been blessed by God to serve uh, His people since October of 1998. And during those times, I have taught uh, many times and preached many times on the doctrine of hell. And and though I believe this doctrine is incredibly important to understand, uh, to be honest, I've never wanted to teach on it. And um, is always a weight in my heart. And uh, today, to be perfectly honest, is no exception. This is not the passage I would have chosen if I weren't preaching through this book. But I will tell you, of all the times I have, all the times I didn't want to preach on hell, this time I don't want to preach on it the least, if that makes sense to you. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled in some ways of the truths in which Christ presents to us today. And I believe that it will be incredibly profitable to your soul, as it has been to me in my study. Luke 16, verse 19. Hear now the Word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus and his side, and he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Our Father, we're thankful for your word and the truth in which it contains. We ask that we would submit our hearts to your revelation to us as presented in Scripture today. 
Help us to bow our knees in faith and trust all that You have done and will do is good and right. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. On April 5th in 1663 in Boston, Pastor John Norton died, apparently of a stroke. He preached that morning from John 14, where Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. He ended his sermon with these words, I have not so lived as that I am ashamed to live any longer, nor am I afraid to die. That afternoon he did die with that hope in his heart. I wonder, do you have that hope? That you too, by God's grace, are not afraid to die? The reality is, is that you will die, and I will die, and all of us will die if the Lord tarries. The question, I think, presented to us is, what happens then? What comes next? Christianity, of course, is based upon the belief that this life in which we live is in many ways a shadow uh, of the real life that we shall experience for all eternity. And that Christianity teaches that death, though an enemy, though painful, though real, is in many ways a doorway to our final destination. Either heaven, as Scripture teaches, or hell. Now many people object to this idea today, of course. I don't believe in hell, they say. I believe in a loving God. They're like one popular Roman Catholic priest who has famously said, I believe in hell, I just believe it's empty. Well, you may not believe in hell. That's certainly up to you. But I would like to be clear here this morning. Jesus does. And you know my standard practice. I'm going with Jesus. Just kind of every time I'm going to side with Jesus on this one. Jesus taught about hell. In fact, Jesus taught about hell more than all other biblical authors combined. You take all the teaching of Scripture on hell, uh, except for the four Gospels, you take what Jesus taught in the four Gospels on hell, and He taught far more on hell than the rest of Scripture combined. Evidently, He thinks it's important for us to understand. I would also suggest to you, if you object to the idea of hell, I would just like to put this thought in your mind, that we should beware of judging God. You and I have been around for a handful of years. Our brains weigh about three pounds. We are not that smart. God is all-knowing, all-loving, all-holy, all-just, and you and I are not any of those things consistently. And I believe it it is foolish, and I would even suggest it is dangerous for you and I to sit on the throne of judgment and ask the creator of heaven and earth to justify to us how it is he runs the universe and that we then will render a verdict whether we approve of his acts or not. In fact, I would suggest to you that's how we got into this trouble in the first place. That we disapproved of God's will, found it unreasonable and plunged ourselves into sin and despair. My suggestion to you would be, especially in this case, that you would not reject His will concerning the reality of hell because you think it's a terrible place and wish it didn't exist. It is a terrible place. As we see Jesus teach, consider first of all this morning the nature of hell. The Bible begins, or this passage begins in verse 19, 
Jesus says there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. He, I don't know if you remember who he's talking to. Look over in verse 14. It says the Pharisees who were lovers of money. So he's addressing the Pharisees during this time. And Luke tells us, okay, these guys really liked money. And so he begins talking about a guy who had lots of it. And the Pharisees would have really liked this guy. They thought, well, this is a guy who's clearly blessed by God. This guy lives like a prince. You see he's wearing purple clothes. You may know that purple in this day was a dye that you would get from a rare sea snail. Extremely expensive. Only really royalty wore purple in this day. And Jesus even goes on to talk about his underwear. As he says, he also had fine linen. That's a reference to his undergarments. And so he had purple cloaks and nice undershorts, if you will, and he was feasting sumptuously every day. He, he knew uh, nothing uh, that he didn't want, right? He, he knew everything that he wanted. Uh, you can imagine him, I think, even in your mind's eye, the feasting in these gluttonous feasts day after day in the opulent hall. And, and that, of course, was inside his home. In contrast lies another man who Jesus wants to introduce. His, he's a poor man. But Jesus actually gives him a name, Lazarus. You see him in verse 20. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus. And Jesus goes on to describe him, saying he was covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the the contrast can't be any stronger, I don't think. Here's a man who has uh, these weeping or oozing ulcers on his body. Uh, even beyond that, he's starving to death. He's, he's hungry. He's not longing for some sumptuous feast. He just wants the scraps from the rich man's table. I uh, remember when you had kids and, and little kids and you, you had the high chair and after dinner, you picked them up out of the high chair and it looked like they, they sat on a food grenade, right? right? That's what he wants to eat. I just want that. He has nothing in, in fact, he's not only given the scraps, instead the dogs eat the scraps and then they come finish their meal with the discharge oozing from his sores. Evidently too weak to fight off the animals, no strength at all. And there he lies. You notice where he is? At the rich man's gate. And what a powerful contrast between this wondrous wealth and this pitiful poverty. And day by day, you can imagine the rich man kind of stepping over the poor man as his perfumed aroma collides with Lazarus's stench. Every day an opportunity he had to feed the hungry and dress the naked and heal the sick. Every day he had an opportunity to use his worldly wealth, as Jesus taught us earlier in Luke 16, to make eternal friends. Instead he chose to ignore those needs in favor of his own luxurious wants. Lazarus for him was simply part of the landscape, it seems, an unpleasant sight to endure just for a little while, Soon he would be gone, and of course he was, as we read in verse 22. The poor man died. Well, Lazarus is not the only one who died. Despite the man's great wealth, he died as well. Jesus says they both died. Again, verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at 
his side. And, and so what we see is this, uh, once again, a powerful contrast. Remember the contrast of their earthly life. And then it's even more startling in, in the life to come as one person ends up in heaven and the other person ends up in hell. The reality is the Bible clearly teaches that the fate of every man and every woman who has ever lived will, will either go with Lazarus into a place of joy or will go with the rich man in a place of agony. And Jesus begins to describe what it is like. He begins by telling us of Lazarus. You notice, by the way, Lazarus had no burial. Jesus says the rich man was buried, but he just says Lazarus died. The, 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 it would be no proper burial for him. He'd just be thrown in a common grave, ignored by everyone in his society. But the reality is, if he's ignored by everyone around him, he is not ignored by heaven. Because God, in His grace, sends to this man who had nothing, this angelic escort to the side of Abraham himself. In fact, by now you've noticed that this man is named. This will be the only parable that Jesus ever teaches where someone receives a proper name. Lazarus, he calls him. It's always a sower or the younger son or the older brother or the Samaritan. No one's named except this man. Many have speculated, why is he named? I'm not sure, but I will note that his name means God has helped. Which is somewhat of an ironic name. God has helped in light of his earthly life. But we see it in the life to come. When, when everyone forgets him, he was remembered by God. When all neglect him, God sent aid. When all left him to suffer, God would free him from his troubles and his hardship. Bringing him up to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's side. Which is an interesting way to describe heaven. Isn't it? it? It may be what Jesus is trying to give us is a picture of the fellowship in which we will have in the glory of heaven. We saw earlier in Luke 16, and he talks about how we'll have friends in heaven. And in Luke 13, he talked about heaven as this feasting with the patriarchs and the prophets. But, but I think perhaps even beyond that, what Jesus is giving us is a metaphor. Um, Abraham, as the Bible teaches us, was the father of all who believed. Romans 4 verse 11. And I think he's, what he's subtly showing us is that this, this man is saved, gets to go to heaven, not by his poverty, but by his faith. He's a believer. He's a true son of Abraham, the father of all who believe. Well, Lazarus is presented in contrast to the rich man who we see just once again, verse 22, it says, well, the, the rich man also died and was buried, he says, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus and his side um, you, you can imagine his burial I think he would have received a proper burial it would have been impressive right with his purple gowns his fine gowns as the masses kind of gather around and mourn while they lay his body in his beautiful tomb and all of that stands in contrast to his real fate See, it's not the end of the story he finds himself in agony in a place called Hades or we might call hell and we find, first of all, as we consider the nature of hell, that hell is a place of torment. He says in verse 23 that he's being in torment. Verse 28, it will be described as a place of torment. But it's elaborated, I think, in verse 24. And it says, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Right? Uh, you, you notice... When the Bible talks about hell, it, it's, not, it's never presented as a party. You know, we're all dressed up in our finest clothes, sipping cocktails with a candlelight. 
Um, he, he can't even get a drop of water for his tongue there. Now, I believe that these type of descriptions, we may disagree on this point, and that's okay, I think. I believe that these type of descriptions of hell are metaphorical. Please understand, this is not a historical account. This is a story Jesus made up. It's a parable. But I, I believe that when hell is described in physical ways like this, it's a, it's a dis- way to describe the spiritual agony in which people endure in hell. So I do not believe, and I've taught this to you before, I, I don't believe hell is a place where God tortures people forever. I don't think he's pouring coals on people's head. I don't think he's putting their feet in acid. I, I think we see this time and time again. Hell is a place where God simply bars people from his presence. And because he shuts them out from his presence, it is therefore a place of torment. Because the reality is every single person in this world is living off of God's presence. Everything that is beautiful and joyful and majestic and loving is all simply a reflection of who God is. So if you, if you Uh, are moved by a piece of music it is not simply i mean what is in music and what is in you to make make you moved by that that's a reflection i believe of a good creator and who god is or when you're in awe of a sunset or are are overwhelmed by the embrace of a loved one or delight in food when you experience joy and beauty and awe and delight all of that whether you follow christ or not is a reflection of god i believe therefore hell is a place of torment Because all that is beautiful and joyful is taken away. You're cast off from God. Notice verse 23. says he's far off. He's far away. Hell is a place where there's no joy. There's no laughter. There's no love. You can't love. You you don't want to be loved. It's, It's not God is whipping people forever. He just sends them away. And therefore, I think it's incredibly just. Because who goes to hell? People who don't want God. They don't want anything to do with them. So he simply gives them what they want and withdraws his presence from them. And therefore, it is a place of torment. You also see that hell has no mercy. Notice the conversation this man has with Abraham, verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. The focus here is the reversal that's taking place, right? They've switched places, haven't they? And, and you know, everything the rich man had, he's lost and more. And everything Lazarus didn't have, he's now gained and, and more. And Abraham, Abraham's response is, wait a second. When you were living in that life, you didn't seem to be bothered by the disparity between you two. Here's a man who wanted something to eat. Who's a man who's dying at your gate? That didn't seem to trouble you now. And, and now that things are reversed... What grounds do you have to object? No, you, you will not get a drop of water. You will not get mercy in hell. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Now I want to be clear that when we say there's no mercy in hell, it doesn't mean that heaven is full of glee at the torment of people in hell. And I, I love how Abraham talks to him. You see well, how he addresses him in verse 25. He, he doesn't call him the wicked man. He, he says, this is child. Technon, it means little boy. It, there's a note of sadness, isn't there? This is tragic. This didn't have to happen. 
I don't think God looks at people in hell and he's laughing at them from his heavenly throne. We even saw in Luke 13 that Jesus approaches Jerusalem. They are unwilling to receive the mercy in which he would give them at the cost of his own life. And he weeps. So it may not be a place of, no, of mercy, but it, the fact that it has no mercy does not fill heaven with joy. The third aspect of hell that Jesus teaches us is that hell is inescapable. Note this in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So he talks about this yawning chasm between these two destinations. And he says there's no bridge. Now again, I think this is a metaphor. It's teaching us that it's too late. No one ever leaves hell. The doctrine of purgatory is out of the question. It is not taught anywhere in Scripture. Hell as heaven is a final destination. And once you're in hell, it's too late to cry out. It's too late to believe. It's too late. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I I want you to understand with great love in my heart that now is the time to call out for God's mercy. Now is the time to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I surrender. I yield my life to you. And for us Christians, now is the time to offer mercy. Because once you have passed through death, you cannot offer it anymore. So we see hell as a place of torment. But what I find even more startling is not just the description of hell, but the description of the man in hell. I want you to consider briefly his attitude. I don't know if you're kind of catching this, but he seems to be somewhat in denial. Not denial that he's in hell, but denial that he's to blame. Consider, secondly, the attitude of hell. Look again in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and sent Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. He says, send Lazarus, the guy I did nothing for, and let die at my doorstep. Send him down here to hell to cool my tongue. He's issu- From hell, he's issuing commands. He's going to get in this debate with Father Abraham even. See, he knows he's in torment, but he still thinks he's in charge, right? Lazarus should come down here and be my servant. In fact, notice what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask to get out. He just wants hell to be more comfortable. In fact, I I think C.S. Lewis is right when he said no one ever asks to get out of hell. Lewis says the door door to hell is locked from the inside. And the reason why is that they'll never admit they're wrong. They'll just forever grow in their hatred of God, going further and further and further into their sin as God withdraws His hand from them. They will, as Jesus says, gnash their teeth in defiance to God. He doesn't ask for escape. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness. In fact, it seems to me his argument is he got a bad deal. Look in verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the scripture. Let them hear them. Look at his response, verse 30. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. Right? So Abraham says, no, they got the Bible. And he says, it's not enough. 
Now, how does he know the Bible's not enough? Because it wasn't enough for him. He got a bad deal. God didn't give me enough information. Right? I never got the proper warning. Send the proper warning to my brothers. You need to let people know about this place, he says. See, he's not to blame. God is to blame. He's still obstinate in hell. Now, I know people say, oh, I just can't believe in hell. Well, yeah, if, if hell is a pl- like a pit where God throws people and they're trying to climb out and he's stepping on their fingers and laughing from heaven, I have a hard time believing in that too. But if hell is just God giving you what you want, I want to live without you, just letting you go. I think that's what Scripture teaches. In fact, Romans 1 says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against ungodliness. Present tense, not will be revealed, is being revealed. And then you read the rest of Romans 1. How is the wrath of God being revealed? Over and over it says in Romans 1, and God just takes his restraining hand off them, and they go further into sin. And he takes his restraining hand, and they go further into sin, and they go further, further into their own depravity, plunging into sin for all eternity. The men in hell, they don't even want to get out. Well, if it is such a terrible place, the question is, how do we avoid it? How do, how do we make sure we don't end there? Third, consider avoiding hell. And in order to answer that question, we have to ask, why is the rich man in hell? You notice he's a believer Three times he looks at Abraham and calls him what? Father. Father Abraham. He knows Father Abraham. He's a Jew. But here, be clear. Being a descendant of Abraham is not enough to save him. I want you to keep your finger here. I want you to turn to Luke 3. Luke 3 is an amazingly interesting passage in light of this story that Jesus teaches us. Luke 3 is John the baptizer is preaching to Pharisees, rich men. And in verse 8 of Luke 3, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Right? So repent. Let's see the fruit in your life. Look what he says. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Don't say father Abraham. Right? That doesn't mean anything. And then he warns them, verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not enough to have Abraham as your father. It's not enough to be a, a, a believer, if you will. You, there, the, the belief in which you have has got to bear fruit. There needs to be fruit of repentance, evidence that the faith is genuine and true. You say, well, what is that fruit? Well, that's what they ask, verse 10. And the crowds ask them, what then shall we do? Answer, verse 11. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. What's the fruit? Generosity. Sharing. Caring for those in need. See, the rich man presumed he was going to make it to heaven because he's a child of Abraham, but he had no fruit in his life and the axe fell and now he ended up in hell. He loved money and luxury more than the poor dying man at his gate and he went to hell because of it. Didn't make any difference that he's a son of Abraham. The parallel today is for us to say, I go to church, I believe in Jesus, I'm a member of Hamilton Baptist Church, don't tell me 
how I use my money can send me to hell. I am secure. And I just want to remind you, my brothers and sisters, that the Lord Jesus Himself said in Matthew 7 and verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that if you and I live without regard to the needs in our community and in our life and around us, if we live for our luxuries, then earth will be your heaven. And your destiny will be in hell. We, our faith, must have evidence. Fruit. It's not compassion doesn't save you. Generosity doesn't save you. You don't, it's like, okay, do I show enough generosity in order to buy my ticket to heaven? No. Compassion, though, does show you are saved. It is the fruit. I want to show you the opposite example. Turn to Luke 19 to the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, terrible, sinful man, lived for himself, right? And came to faith in Christ, which is evident in 19 verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. He says, I want to be generous now. Jesus says to him, verse 9, Today salvation has come to this house. Did he buy his salvation? No, no, he didn't. He just shows that his heart has been changed by his generosity and love to the poor. Aid to the poor. Generosity with your money is evidence of your salvation. In fact, I would even suggest it is necessary evidence of your salvation. The reason I want to give you two verses. I want us to get this. 1 John three fifteen. If anyone has possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? See what John's saying? Right? You get all this compassion from God. right? God's compassionate to you. And you will not be compassionate to others. He says, how can, how can God's love be in you? James 2.15 If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and you say to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they need... What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James says, listen, if your faith does not show itself in generosity to those people in need, your faith is dead. We are saved by faith. Jesus says, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. But the salvation by faith is a faith that bears fruit. And if it does not bear fruit, in particular in generosity with your money, if you live for your own luxuries and not to help other people, it is, I tell you, by the authority of the Word of God, it is a dead faith and it will not save you. Therefore, Christians, does how you handle your money show that you've been changed by God? You, if you, I believe in my heart, if you have been impacted by God how you handle your money, how you view your money, how you use your money will be changed. And if we watched how you spent your money, would would we think you're living more like the rich man, living for your ease and comfort? Beware of your heart that longs for more and more ease as opposed to a heart that's willing to sacrifice for the good of those in need. 
Beware of a heart that just wants to lavish luxuries upon yourself while only giving crumbs to others. I'm not telling you, by the way, now go give your money away. I'm telling you to ask yourself by the Spirit of God, have you been moved by the compassion that you have claimed to receive from God to be compassionate to other people? And if you have not, I think there's good reason to question whether you've truly received by faith the compassion of God in His mercy through Christ. Non-Christians here today. I wonder who do you think ends up in hell? Because some people believe in hell, but they say it's a place for murderers and people like them. And I just want you to see the rich man didn't kill anybody. He didn't even hurt anybody. All he did was live for himself, and he went to hell because of it. Blaise Pascal, the theologian and mathematician, said if you are the typical modern, which he said in the 1600s, by the way, If you're the typical modern, your life is like a rich mansion with a terrifying hole right in the middle of the living room floor. What is that hole, he asks? It is your own death. So what do you do? You paper over the hole with a very busy wallpaper to distract yourself. Pascal said that the two widest roads to hell are indifference and diversion. My prayer for you today is that you would not shrug your shoulders and think this is just a silly sermon from a silly man. And that you would not just simply um, occupy yourself with, with other thoughts and other things. My, my hope is that God would get a hold of your heart today and He would impress upon your heart that Christ has come to die for sinners like you and me. And He's come to pay our debt and He rose from the grave. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and you believe in the heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Save from hell the wrath of God forever and ever. Christ says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. No one here has to go to hell if you would just place your life into the merciful hands of Christ. Number four this morning. The necessity of hell. I want to show you Christians and that we have to believe in hell. And there's a very interesting dialogue between the rich man and Abraham. In verse 27, we've seen a little bit of it. He said, that's the rich man, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. See, the rich man's asking for a miracle for the sake of his brothers. Send Lazarus back from the dead and warn my brothers. Abraham's response is no, they should read the Bible. Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Lazarus, by the way, evidently had Moses and the prophets. He heard them, he repented, he believed. The word was enough for him. I hope you believe the word is enough, Christian. For people to come to salvation, we should be testifying to the Word weekly, daily. We should be, throughout our days, being able to testify to what God is teaching us in His Word, knowing that the Word of God begins to work in our hearts to bring to faith. So he says, let him read the Word. The Word's enough. The rich man objects in verse 30. 
Notice he's very argumentative with Abraham. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He says, the word's not enough. They are so in love with money, right, that, that, that the word won't, won't change them. The Bible will do them no good. They need a miracle. Isn't that not what our culture says? You know, if God would write his name in the sky, give us a miracle. Blow off the top of a mountain, right? Appear to me in a vision, then we would believe. Send Lazarus. Man, if Lazarus could come up from the ground, man, that would get their attention. Right? I mean, you could, you could send a ghost and make him float around and moan and carry heavy chains and rattle them. And that would, that would really wake them up. Right? Then they would believe. Put the fear of God in them, he says. And Abraham has this stunning response. He says, that will never Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If the word will not impact their hearts, a miracle will not either. Now that's stunning to me because, come on, just imagine for a moment that Lazarus does come back and the brothers see him and they say, wait a second, we know you, you died. And Lazarus says, yeah, I did die. I went to heaven but your brother's in hell and he has sent me to warn you. Now, how would they respond? Uh, I don't think so, right? No, I, I can't imagine that. I think what they would say is, okay, we need to change our life so we too don't go to hell. Of course they would believe in hell. But John Piper, I think is right, who's asked this question. They might be utterly knocked out of their senses but will they be knocked out of their sins? Friends, the fear of God will never change the allegiance of our heart. The fear of hell will never keep anyone out of hell. It, it happened to John Bunyan in 1656, 28 years old, a pagan, right? He's he's should be in church on Sunday in puritanical England. Instead, he's playing a game, a lawn game called cat. I have no idea how to play this game. He heard a voice, and the voice said, Will thou live thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? Bunyan was paralyzed with fear, and he said, Leaving my cat upon the ground, I looked up to heaven. And he said, I began in this long period of prayer and spiritual terror. It changed his life. He began to live the Christian life. And one day, a number of years later, he actually came to faith in Christ and he looked back at that time and Bunyan said, all I became was a brisk talker in matters of religion. And it changed his heart. You don't, you don't even have to look in history. Look in the scripture. There was a, there's another man named Lazarus, isn't there? I think that might be the reason why Jesus called this man Lazarus because the real Lazarus actually came back from the dead publicly dead for four days. Christ calls him out of the grave. He comes back from the dead. Those who were opposing Jesus in this day, who wanted to kill Jesus, do you know what they decided once Lazarus came out of the grave? Oh, we believe, we're sorry, we were all wrong. No, the Bible says they begin to plot to kill Lazarus too. Right? Does, I don't make a lot of sense to me. The guy who already died and like kind of defeated death, we're going to kill him, they say. It doesn't change their heart. A miracle will never change our hearts. Our hearts, by their, by their default, are set upon ourselves. It's all about me, me, me. And when we scare people with hell, you know what? They may become good. They may start giving to the poor. But why? 
right? Is it because they love the good? Because they love God? No, they're not being good for goodness sake. They're being good for their sake. They're still just as self-focused and they will use God to get what they want, namely heaven and not hell. So then the question is, okay, if the fear of God won't change our heart, what will change our heart? Love. A superior love. A majestic love. A compelling love. Right? You love your spouse. What do you do? You start to serve them. Not because you're afraid if you don't, but because you delight in them. Miracles don't do that. Lazarus being raised from the dead didn't do that. Even Jesus conquering the death did not do this. You know what we need to know? We need to know not simply that Jesus died and rose from the dead. We need to know why He died and rose from the dead. Where do we find that? The Scripture. Moses and the prophets. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Let me just show you one place. I think this will be very important for us. This is one of the clearest places in Scripture that shows us why Jesus died It not only tells us that He died, it not only tells us that He rose from the dead, prophesied 700 years before Christ came. In fact, this Isaiah 53 is so clearly pointing to the work of Jesus that most skeptics believe this passage of Isaiah was written after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord until in 1949 they found the Dead Sea Scroll of the complete book of Isaiah that was dated 200 years before Christ. They, they, for a thousand years, said it couldn't have been written before Jesus because it points so clearly to Him until we found out it was. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it pleased, it it was the will of the Lord, it pleased the Lord to crush him. That's talking about his death. He has put him to grief. When his soul, that's Jesus, makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. This is is Christ's reference to Christ's resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. So start in 10, the will of the Lord's crush him. End of verse 10, the will of the Lord's prosper his hand. Now look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Okay? So Christ, the Bible saying, listen, Christ is going to have this anguish in his soul. And out of the anguish of his soul, he's going to see something. And he's going to be satisfied with what he sees. What is it that satisfies him? It's you. And it's me. Those whom He is purchasing by His blood, by the anguish of His soul, that satisfies Him. Scripture teaches us over and over again that, my friends, you are so loved by God, He is willing to suffer for you. He's willing to suffer anguish for you. You say, how much suffering is He willing to do? Now this is the key, because the amount of suffering somebody is willing to endure for you is a reflection of the degree of their love to you. You get that? The amount that someone is willing to suffer for you is a reflection of the degree in which they love you. And you won't understand how much Jesus loves you until you understand what he suffered on the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher, said, Listen, uh, imagine if your friend came over and you weren't home. And he saw you the next day and he says, Hey, I came by your house, you weren't home, but I saw that there was a bill due. And I paid the bill. I paid it for you. And Lloyd-Jones says, how do you respond? He says, well, you, you have to know what the bill was, right? Because if it's postage due, if it's just 20 cents, you say, oh, thanks, appreciate that. But if it's the IRS and said, we've been looking for you for 20 years, right? And you got taxes and penalties and interests, and you are going to jail unless you pay this tomorrow. And, and he paid it. 
what do you do? You, f- you fall at his feet, right? You have to know what was paid. Lloyd-Jones says, until you know how much he has paid, you don't know whether to shake his hand or fall on the ground and kiss his feet. So what did Jesus pay for you? What does Scripture tell us? On the cross, what does he cry out? My God, my God, these nails hurt. My God, my God, I can't breathe. My God, my God, I'm scared. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? Why are you far off? Jesus went to hell for you. He experienced the very wrath of God on the cross for you. Why is He in such agony? Is God pouring acid on His head? Is God pricking Him with a pitchfork from heaven? No, He leaves. He turns His back. That is hell. Cut off from all that is good. Now, I believe in a literal, physical hell that people will spend in eternity. Please don't misconstrue my words. But Jesus is experiencing the wrath of hell on the cross. He is in torment. He is unspeakable agony. Why? Because He loves you. Because He he loves you beyond measure. Oh, that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The apostle prays that we might know His love, that we might be changed by it. I'll tell you one way you know the love of God is that Jesus went to hell for you. He's cut off from the presence of God because He loves you. And I would suggest when you read Luke 16 in this story, you not simply look at the rich man and pity him and think, oh, this is so sad. What a terrible plight. What a terrible place for him. That is an appropriate response, but I don't think that's the only response. I think Jesus is showing us this, not simply that, so that we understand the torments of, of this rich man. He is showing us so that we understand what Christ endured for us. You look at the rich man, and you see that's what Jesus took for me. Was he in torment? Jesus? Was he in anguish? Yeah. Did he even thirst on the cross? Someone just give me a drop of cool water. Did he not say that on the cross? This parable is not simply a glimpse of what you avoid, Christian. It is a picture of what Christ has endured for you. Jesus is the rich man who experiences hell on our behalf. And Jesus receives, that is, He doesn't, of course, not neglecting the poor, but He receives what the rich man was punished with so that we might experience what the poor man received. And I'll tell you, it's only when you see this will you be impacted by His love for you. Right? I think this is one of the many reasons, that we'll end here, why hell is necessary. If you don't believe in hell, you don't know how much God loves you. See, people say, I don't believe in hell, I believe God is loving. And they're actually making God less loving by denying hell. That's the great irony. You say, oh, I don't believe in hell, God's loving. You ask them, okay, what did it cost God to love you? They say, well, it cost God anything. That's God's job to love me. And that will not change anyone's life. If you don't believe in hell, God's love will have very little influence in your life. You may admire God. 
but he He won't have any weight in your life. There'll be no transformation in your life. But when you think, okay, Jesus Christ, the judge of the universe, came into this world not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment, to to go to receive the punishment of hell for greedy, self-absorbed people like us. My friends, you you let that in your heart. That will transform you. Do you, you... Don't you want to love freely and forgive with joy and be quick to praise? Don't you want boldness and humility? Don't you want freedom to to give as God instructs you? Don't you want to be able to sing where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all? Then you need to believe in hell and believe that out of unsurpassable and unknowable love jesus went there to save you from it our father we are eternally and forever grateful for the work of christ and this is my prayer father that we just wouldn't know him that is with no facts about him that we would know the degree of love in which we have been received from Him. We have never been loved by anyone like we have been loved by Christ. And all the loves in this life that we cherish pale in comparison to how Jesus has loved us. Let us understand that. Let us understand the degree of His love was to take the very wrath of God upon Himself so we would not receive it. Help that to change us. Help that to transform our lives, a love that wins our hearts, that we might follow you and obey you with great delight and joy for the one who has loved us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.